Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution sponsored by Fido Mobile. Stay tuned as we talk Canadian news and Black issues on a regular basis. And if you support our work to keep you informed, please subscribe. On this week's episode, we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of April 10th, including... Doug Ford makes good on his promise to cut the gas tax. The Ontario NDP and Liberals spar for the progressive vote. Canada's record unemployment rate and rising interest rates. Marianne Chambers becomes the University of Guelph's 10th Chancellor. Another unfortunate and untimely passing of a Black man happens in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And plenty more. To kick off our politics segment. Well, as you know, everyone, we pay particular focus to federal issues from a Black millennial perspective on this podcast. But with Ontario's election slated to begin in just three weeks, we thought it pertinent to pivot and start discussing Doug's re-election bid. With that said, let's take a look at some key headlines since the beginning of the month to highlight how the election's been shaping up. So first, Doug Ford cuts the gas tax. Last week, I told you that Ford's government was considering cutting that tax. On Thursday, they passed legislation to make it a reality. It means that as of July 1, the gas tax would be reduced by 5.7 cents per liter and the fuel tax by 5.3 cents per liter until December. Interestingly enough, the government had apparently put money aside to make this a reality. It'll cost Ontario's coffers $645 million for six months, for 5.7 cents at the pump. Looks like hollowing out the bureaucracy to me, but okay. As Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlenfalvy sees it, quote, ongoing supply chain challenges and geopolitical conflicts are pushing up the cost of living from gas to groceries. Absolutely. Which is, yeah, 100% true. He continued, quote, with these added pressures, families and businesses need extra help to keep costs low. That's why our government bought, brought forward legislation to provide tax relief at the pumps and put money back into people's pockets. His announcement comes as many of us paid some unheard of amounts at the pumps. Yeah. This would be the first time that Ontario reduced the gas tax in 30 years, just FYI. Oh, really? Oh, sorry. I'm I'm reacting on the fly today. Okay, wow. (laughs) Whoa. Ford first promised to cut the gas and fuel taxes in the 2018 election by 10 cents a liter. He and his goons, I mean party, at the time, said it was... <laughs> they really you know, are goons. They, they really were, are, like, man them on the block. Anyway. No, like, like, maybe not now, but, like, they were definitely goons definitely. back then. 100%. At the time, said it would be accomplished by doing what? Scrapping our province's cap-and-trade system with Quebec and California, meant to reduce our emissions in lockstep with the largest subnational jurisdictions. But when the system was scrapped... The federal carbon tax kicked in for us, which rendered the 4.3 cents savings null and void. Ford tried to fight the carbon tax in court, and thank God he lost. Last fall, he promised to cut the remaining 5.7 cents 
but backtrack because of outcry about the cost. But he's doing it now in response to high levels of inflation being felt both here and around the world. So patience, is, is it a good move, especially if you consider the fact that they apparently saved up for this? This is very interesting, Curtis. Mm. Here's what I'm, I'm a little um, perplexed mm. because could he have known that we would have this international conflict that would drive up the cost and know to save for that? Or, or is that not? Yeah, please clarify if I'm misunderstanding. I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. But if I think of it from a strategic lens, I, yeah. I'm sure that his advisors would have said, okay, if you really want to do something like this, I, I, first of all, I think they probably argued against it. But if you really want to do it, they would say, mm-hmm. save it for a time where it would really count. Right before the election, right. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, you know, when there's global upheaval and we need to save people some money. But yeah, that way, that that looks, that looks makes sense too. Because how would he have known that in, in the last eight months of his term that um, there would have been this, um, this rise in gas prices? He was going to do it regardless. He was going to try to save us money on our gas, regardless of whether or not gas became a a, a pinch, right? For for most Ontarians, that, that, that that's what I because I don't. If if you're saying he saved up for this, is, is the man in with Putin? Like, did Putin tell him, "Yo, no, like, this no, about to go down"? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course not. So th- this is this has always been his plan, right? And same with the the stuff that he's doing with with the Ministry of Transportation, um, getting everyone sent those checks, right? It, it's I, I get it I get it and it's um he, he's trying to pull the wool over our eyes and it's unfortunate that we're in the midst of such a, a a serious affordability crisis that it's gonna work. Yeah, I mean it probably will. When you consider the fact that he is, you know, he's cutting this five point three or five point seven cents, whatever it would fully work out to be at the pumps, mm-hmm. and then he's reduced the Poll, the toll charges rather for the 412 and the 418 for drivers mm-hmm. you know in, in those regions and then he's also what did he do oh yeah what you talked about last week with the rebate for yeah. license plate renewals right yeah. yeah so what i know that he's doing as a strategy is that he's trying to portray himself as not only the guy saying yes to everything but the guy who's incrementally going to put money back into your pocket. Yes, yes. Um, Directly, right? Not through rebates or anything like that. No, you're going to get a check to your home. You're going to swipe less at the pumps. It's effective, can't lie. Yeah, well, we'll, uh, like you said, we'll see if it actually has the effect. I mean, when you consider as well, because, I mean, there's there's the effect of, yes, you, you get that check in the mail or you see a little less paying at the pumps or whatever. Yes, those effects are real. But I do think that there are still a contingent of people in this province who actually say, look, this is this sounds nice, but at what cost? Yeah, absolutely, Curtis. This is, I, 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 I hope that people are not taking me, giving this guy a, a recognition of his, his strategy as a approval. No, no, no. This mm. is still not progressive. No. It is not progressive to give rich people $280 or $330 back as a, as, as a motivator 
like people who are everyone got everyone who has registered their license plates got this right the rich mm-hmm. and people who are struggling that's not a progressive move for a government to do same with at the pumps you're giving the you're giving people back money at the pumps who need it and people who don't a more progressive way to to deal with this affordability crisis is to to pour into the people who are at the cusp yeah but not what he's doing so absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to shift gears a little bit to to discuss the other parties, essentially, uh, in Ontario, we've got the NDP taking strategic shots at the Liberals to shore up votes. (laughs) So with just three weeks before the Ontario election campaign begins, party leaders on the left have started taking shots at each other while making plays for their opponent's base. The audacity. I mean, <laughs> trusted poll aggregator 338 Canada has consistently had Ford's government hovering around 38%, putting them in majority territory come June 2. They've been less consistent about who is in second place, though, which explains why the shots have begun. Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca has clearly made the party competitive again since it lost party status in the 2018 election but he hasn't done enough to pull away from Horvath's NDP. That's why Andrea is trying to change the narrative by shooting her shot at liberal voters. She said, quote, voting NDP is the way to prevent Ford from being reelected as the premier. I'm asking folks who may have decided in the past to vote liberal to keep conservatives out to recognize that this time, that's not the strategy. This time, that strategy will split the vote and cause Doug Ford to come up the middle, end quote. <laughs> you got something to say? <laughs> I want you I want you to finish. Please finish. She argues that she is in a better position to build from the 40 seats she already has rather than the 26 she'd likely end up with after June 2nd if current polls hold. For his part, Del Duca responded saying, shh, don't listen to the noise. <laughs> also... He won't be pitching strategic voting anytime soon. He said, quote, you're not going to hear me talk about strategic voting. You're not going to hear me talk about anything other than our team and our ideas, end quote. He also argued that strategic voting isn't something that most voters care about, even though there are organizations whose MO is all about strategic voting, known organizations like Lead Now or new organizations like Not One Seat. And those organizations have proven themselves quite effective before, including in helping stop Stephen Harper's conservatives in 2015. But they didn't quite succeed in doing that with Doug Ford in 2018, did they? They did not. So what do you you think about this, Patience? Do you think progressive voters should follow Andrea Horvath's lead and back the NDP over the liberals in at least key writings? Like we're talking about like maybe like 18 writings in Toronto that the PCs won in 2018 that they shouldn't have. This is a very, very interesting question. Now, I I live in a riding that is federally conservative and has been, for the last two or three terms, provincially NDP. Jennifer French. Yes. And I understand NDP has, has what I call like, like union stronghold. So there are certain parts of the province that 
have really large union residents. So mm-hmm. Hamilton is another union stronghold. Again, Orange. And then I'm in Oshawa, union stronghold, Orange. Um, so I, I understand, like, she has a, what I think would, would be considered a steady base. Mm-hmm. And because of what happened last term, and, and I, I want to be clear, though, like, what happened to the Liberals last term is, I think, the largest demonstration of bigotry that I've seen in Ontario in a very long time. I want to remind you guys of what happened, at least from Mm -hmm. my perspective. Maybe, I I don't know if you'll agree or disagree, Curtis. And I know given your position, you may not want to say much on this, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm far enough away from this that I I can maybe say something. Um, Kathleen Wynne and and her party was brought down because people were so against the LGBTQ2 plus community um the integration of uh, of that 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 knowledge and that history into the school system mm-hmm. that is what the, the, it, and it's bigotry right in, in my yes. opinion yes. that bigotry is what pushed a very good party out of the system yes. out of party status so if we you know take our position as you know we're, we're two years into this racial revolution we are starting to understand what oppression looks like. Mm-hmm. We really need to reconsider what happened to the liberals and really put our trust back into the Ontario liberals. In my opinion, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that the, the, the NDP and their advancements when it comes to, um, you know, making unions popular again, encouraging people to organize again, always talking about the living wage um, you know, 15 and freedom and, and things like that, tying um, the minimum wage to inflation, all of that stuff, also good. So w- what I'm saying is I'm actually for strategic voting, but mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that voting orange is, is, is the best thing because I don't think that the liberals did anything to lose their, their position as the governing party. And if it wasn't popular, they should have at least been the official opposition. Like, I think that was just the whole province losing our, our goddamn minds. <laughs> <laughs> we done lost our goddamn mind. Yeah, Can you imagine? Game. I Honestly, I can't, like, maybe, like, four years ago really puts things into perspective. But even then, I thought it was, thought it was absolutely bonkers that people were not voting for the liberals because they thought that, that what? That the, the Ministry of Education was going to teach their kids to be gay? Like, What? You know, I think yes is a short answer, but I think, <laughs> but I, I also, you know, for those who may be a bit more centrist, I also want to kind of highlight the other perspectives, right? Yes, bigotry played a huge part in that, uh, in Kathleen Wynne losing and the Liberals losing that election, and in Doug Ford trumping her as opposed to Andrew Horbath trumping her, right? So, so here's what I'll say, right? Yeah. The NDP was not able to capitalize on the hatred towards Kathleen Wynne, unfortunately, right? Right. Well, I mean, unfortunate or or fortunate, depending on how you look at it. But anyway, they weren't able to capitalize. And so to me, to piggyback on what you've been saying about where we are in the provincial election, the fact that Doug Ford is likely going to win, the fact that we don't know who the official opposition really is going to be, um, Look, the NDP should be in a much stronger position than they are. Yes. The fact that they have not been able to strengthen, shore up their support 
from my perspective, look, they have the right heart on things. They had the right perspective on things most of the time. Right. From my perspective. Yeah. 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 But what I think policy. Yeah. Right. Policy. But what they do not have, particularly in the province of Ontario, is the actual professional capacity to get things done. And more importantly, in my opinion, they don't have the confidence of the key stakeholders in this province. And you need that. Right now, the progressive conservatives have it, even though they don't, they may not have, you know, social stakeholders. They certainly have business stakeholders, hmm. uh, construction stakeholders, et cetera. And we know that construction in particular is a massive entity or a massive industry in this province, right? Hmm. The NDP, to your point, they've got unions, but guess what? So do liberals. Yeah, they don't have all the unions. Yeah, right. And and what liberals have over and above uh, NDP support in unions again is the capacity to actually take power and get things done. Mm. The NDP doesn't have that. The last time they had that was Bob Ray, and they've been shut out since. And Bob Ray, for that matter, he became a liberal. So that says everything you need to know. Oh man, <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> but yeah, well, well, we will see how things play out come June 2nd. And, you know, patients, as you are aware, we're looking to have representatives from each of the parties come on the podcast over the course of the month of May mm-hmm. to speak to the values that, you know, that they espouse and, and that will, in their opinion, help Ontarians. So we look forward to having that conversation too. Yes, we do. Jumping to our Canadian economy story. Canada's economy is pretty lit right now. The question is, can we maintain it? According to StatsCan data, the unemployment rate fell to its lowest point in March since 1976, falling from 5.5% to 5.3% after adding 72,500 jobs. And patients, you, you kind of touched on this last week, but I thought it'd be relevant to actually speak to the, the, the specifics of it. Yes. So driving those gains were 24,500 women over 55 who found work and 35,300 core aged men that's men between the ages of 25 and 54 finding work too although primarily part-time mm. stats can said the gains were concentrated in ontario and quebec particularly in construction and natural resources what's better economists say they may be there may be room for the unemployment rate to fall even further since wow. oil producing parts of the country haven't seen full rebounds yet Since hitting a peak of 1.5 million in April 2020 at the onset of COVID, the number of people wanting work but not actively looking has fallen to 377,000. And that's basically the same number of people that were looking for work in March of each of the three prior years before 2020. Hmm. When one drills down into who these people are that aren't working, we find that just over a quarter didn't look because of an illness or disability. A further one-fifth were part of a group waiting for a recall or reply from an employer or who didn't think that there was anything available for them, while nearly an additional fifth pointed to personal and family responsibilities for why they weren't working. And I know that there are some, at least discussions around strategies to get that, at least that that additional final fifth back into the workforce as well. For the record, our tight labor market meant average hourly wages were up 3.4% year over year in March, up from 3.1% in February, which is great. If only that were keeping up with inflation of 5.7%, right? But hey. Yikes. 
For the record, the bank increased interest rates this week too, with hopes of changing just that. Canada's overnight interest rate now sits at 1%, and the increase in concert with other governments may have an effect. May. Yikes. Thoughts on that news? It's incredible. You know, there's this um, this sound that's been trending maybe for a week or two, and it's a a Kim Kardashian sound. I don't know if you've heard it. But um, she says, she's asked a question, what's the biggest piece of advice or whatever, biggest problem that's happening right now? And she says, people don't want to work. Get get off your ass and work. And... (laughs) Mm. obviously people want to work (laughs) obviously yes (laughs) people are looking for work are you know getting work part-time full-time uh even if they're not working formally in the labor market people have personal and family responsibilities that involve work like hard labor Mm -hmm. um so i that that's all i was thinking about as you were talking um (laughs) is that um people absolutely have risen up and said, you know what, I'm not going to work for pennies anymore. I I need to be able to provide for my, for my family, for myself, but um, people absolutely want to work. So uh, I I love that, that juxtaposition, given that I've been hearing that sound nonstop. Mm -hmm. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Moving on to blackity black black news this week, Marianne Chambers becomes the 10th chancellor of the University of Guelph. Dr. Chambers was unanimously elected chancellor by the university Senate this past week during its April 7th meeting and is the first black woman to serve as the chancellor of this university. Funny enough, Lincoln Alexander, a black man, was their first black person to serve as chancellor from 1991 to 2007. Being a chancellor of a university is the the, the top position, basically, at a university in Ontario, uh, for sure, if not uh, in in Canada. So it's the position that basically runs the university. They're the final say on everything that has to do with that institution. So really, really big congrats to Marianne Chambers. After immigrating to Canada from Jamaica with her husband and two young sons in 1976, Chambers held progressive roles with Scotiabank and eventually served as their senior vice president. She took an early retirement in 2002 and ran for public office the following year. Then she was elected to the Ontario legislature as a liberal in 2003 and was appointed the Minister of Training Colleges and Universities and then Minister of Children and Youth Services. 
Among her honors, she was named to the Order of Ontario and has received the Queen Elizabeth II Golden Jubilee and Diamond Jubilee Medals, the Prime Minister of Jamaica's Medal of Appreciation, a University of the West Indies Vice Chancellor's Award, and a YWCA Toronto Woman of Distinction Award. Chambers is currently a Governor of Canada's International Development Research Centre, a senior fellow at York University's Glendon School of Public and International Affairs, and is a special advisor for the city of Markham's anti-Black racism strategy. That is one busy, busy lady. 100%. On top of that, Chambers has served on the governing council of the University of Toronto and on boards of not-for-profit organizations, including CUSO International, Center for Addiction and Mental Health, the Project for the Advancement of Childhood Education, the United Way of Canada, the United Way Toronto, YMCA Toronto, and the Rouge Valley Health System. Enough. As Chancellor, Marianne Chambers will preside at convocations, confer all university degrees, provide strategic advice to the president, and act as an ambassador for the university. As the university's senior volunteer, she will also represent its interests to all government levels. The Chancellor is also an ex-officio voting member of the University Senate and Board of Directors. Huge, huge, huge congratulations to Marianne Chambers. What, but, she, but she's not getting paid? She's not. She's a volunteer. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes influence is greater than, than, than money. Oh, no. Oh, I am a full believer in that. No question. I, I just... I find it ridiculous that we elevate people in academia to these kinds of roles and we don't even want to compensate them yeah. properly. Yeah. Anyway, though, I, I you know, I, as you were um, speaking to Miss um, Chambers' accolades and, and what she's done for this province, I, you know, being the political creature that I am, I couldn't help but think of, you know, her time when she was in the Ontario legislature as part of the mm-hmm. Ontario Liberal Party. Yeah. And, and you know, you're, you were speaking to, again, all of her accolades and successes, and you were speaking to the record of a powerhouse. Yes. A powerhouse. And I think it's just important to note that she, like, she was a part of a government, and quite frankly, she, like... She had a prominent role, but she was just one of many. Yeah. I mean, what? that's a powerful-ass government. Yes, it is. And I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Congrats to uh, Marianne Chambers on her appointment. I'm sure that she will serve all those who, all those who have followed her example. I'm sure that she will serve them well. Absolutely. I, I wrote a paper um, last year, maybe? Maybe two years ago. No, I think it was last year. On... Um, racialized leaders that are leading uh, Canadian universities mm-hmm. and the number of black people who make it to the level of Dean, let alone president or chancellor mm-hmm. um, is so incredibly low. Like we're talking uh, 1% if we're lucky across mm-hmm. those, those three positions uh, across the country. So uh, it, it really is like, I know people may be like, why are you mentioning this? This is a real breaking of the glass ceiling, mm-hmm. um, which obviously Lincoln Alexander did first, but now Marianne Chambers is doing uh, for, for black women. And again, even though Lincoln Alexander did it 30 years ago in 1991, n- no one has done it since. Right. So. <laughs> of course. And of course, this, <laughs> this timing takes special significance, right? Of course. So, yes. so there's that. Yeah. Moving on to news that is still blackity black black, but is international. So moving on to news from the world. 
A black man, Patrick Loyola, is shot dead by police in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This story starts like many others have, like Sandra Bland, for instance, with a traffic stop. Everything went down on April 4th when Patrick Loyola was pulled over for expired tags. When pulled over, he got out of the car and refused to go back into the car after the police officer told him to. Uh, the video is available if you want to if you want to watch it for yourself. But w- essentially, what happens in the video is that Patrick runs. No one really knows why he he ran, uh, and now, of course, no one ever will. But after running, the officer chases Patrick and tries to uh, tase him twice into submission uh, and no dice. They struggle for a bit, Patrick and the police officer, uh, with the police officer finally kind of getting on, on top of Patrick, getting him under c- control, pushing his face into the, the grass. And if you watch the video, you can see a little bit of struggle as Patrick's face is kind of right up against the camera, the body the body camera of the officer. And I guess after an, after numerous times of the officer telling Patrick to, to settle down, stop resisting, the officer pulls out his gun and shoots Patrick in the back of his head. What the fuck? With that one gunshot, Patrick dies. As always, your favorite lawyer, Ben Crump, is involved in this. I'm not sure if he's representing the family, but Ben Crump uh, says, quote, this video is very difficult to watch because what you see in that video is unnecessary, unjustifiable, excessive use of fatal force. You see a police officer escalate a minor traffic stop into a deadly execution, end quote. Crump said the officer could have waited for backup once Loyola ran, but instead got violent. He accused him of not following proper training by using the taser while close to Loyola, saying that it was Loyola's natural instinct to stop from being stunned. Of course, you you run or you, you, you move away when you see a taser because you don't want to be stunned. Grand Rapids police chief, um, Chief Winstrom, said the fight over the taser lasted about 90 seconds. And in the final moments, the officer was on top of Loyola, kneeling on his back at times to subdue him. Uh, so that, that's where it's at right now. Um, as usual, the officer is on paid administrative leave while the internal investigation happens. But I, I think it's worth saying that the family is devastated. Um, the Loyola's left Congo as refugees. To, to, to settle into what they thought would be safety, peace in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the U.S. And for them to, to only come and have their son executed by police. So much for that. So much for seeking actually, refuge. Right? You know, it's, um, I have stopped paying attention to police murders of black men and women in the United States. Understandably so. I did see the headline. I, I did see the picture of Mr. Leoya. I, again, decided not to even, I decided not to click. Um, yeah. And you described why I decided not to click. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't really know what, like, there's, there's ignorance that exists right now within me purposely. So I don't know what else to really say other than, you know, I really hate that this is continuing. You know what I mean? I really hate that it's continuing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy that we don't hear about these things in our jurisdictions. And you know, I what I what I tend to gravitate towards is our collective responsibility here in our jurisdictions to ensure we never get to a place. I'm I'm struggling because we 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 aren't in a place where you know a Patrick Leoya is shot in the head by police anymore. We're not we're not, but we still have challenges, right? We still have very. What, what do you challenges. mean by we're not? What, what, what do you mean by that? So I let me see if I can draw this context in. If I think back to even a, a presentation that I gave, which pointed to police training and how effective it can be to stop them from being violent, right? Okay, yeah. The example that I use is going back to the 2018 van attack when okay. yeah. Alec Manashian, right? He 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 easily could have been riddled with bullets after mowing down all those people on Young Street. Yes. And instead, despite the fact that he acted like he had a gun in his hand that was actually his wallet and he would consistently act like he was shooting somebody or he wanted to shoot the police officer who was trying to detain him. Right. The cop was smart enough, trained enough to take Manassian in without, literally without force. Not, not even, not even a hit from the baton, nothing. It was a beautiful thing. It was a, a beautiful, beautiful like pinnacle, best practice. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for that example. Yes. And so, and I say that to say that that is the training, certainly in Toronto that we, that police typically have. And there have also been changes since 2018 to ensure that the newest crop of police, certainly since at least 2019, the newest crop of police are better. They're better trained. Uh, they have more of a guardian mentality rather than a warrior mentality. There has been some changes. However, where the fully where the change hasn't fully been implemented is that there are still bad cops on the force that aren't being forced out. Right. So there's still bad cops on the force. So that that's my challenge. It's like we we are in a better place, and we don't hear this kind of violence happening as often. But it's still a possibility. The the you know the 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 possibility is never zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's my challenge again. Yeah, it, it's um like it's it's to me it's incredible that you know you are wearing a body camera. You know that also I failed to mention that Patrick Leoya um was carrying a passenger in his car, so that passenger had their phone out and also recorded the whole fucking incident. Nuts, man. So, you know, you are, you, there are people around, you know, watching this and there is the only crime is expired tags or, or an incorrect license plate or something like that. You, you don't have to chase him. You the don't. car is there, fam. Or you can wait for backup. Like it, there are just for, for, for someone to end up dead because even even if he stole the vehicle, you know, which there's no evidence to say that he did. Even if he stole the vehicle, should he die for that? No. Exactly. So we just want to say, rest in peace, Patrick Leoya. Jumping to questions for the audience. So today marks the 40th anniversary of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Over the years, there have been clear social advances as a result of the introduction of the Charter, especially for racial, religious, and sexual minorities. One example, 
the biggest social program of all, Medicare, has survived court challenges. A law criminalizing the promotion of hate against minorities passed constitutional muster, but just barely. The Supreme Court even declared a constitutional right to bargain collectively in 2007 and to strike in 2015 after rejecting both ideas in 1987. So what do you consider the most consequential outcome of the introduction of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms? You just listened to episode 83 of The Trip, sponsored by Fido Mobile. And we're so thankful for their support, which amplifies important discussions like these in the fight against anti-Black racism. We're releasing pods on a regular basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. You can also keep up with us on our Instagram and through our Patreon pages dedicated to the podcast. Follow us or support us at The Drip TO. You know, we love our many non-Black, non-BIPOC listeners, but a message specifically to our Black listeners. We hope that you know that we made this for you. (laughs) This is a safe space for you. So if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Toronto's very own Be On Location for the sounds you're hearing now. You can find more tracks from him wherever you get your music. See y'all next time. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.